Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Zach. We run a small independent bookshop called Rosie Ravelston Books. We specialise in selling new and secondhand books that change the world, with books that inspire, motivate and entertain. We're a small social enterprise that combines our love of reading with our passion for supporting refugees and asylum seekers by donating 50% of our profit to a charity called Amiculous, the Humble Friend Project. You can find us and our dog Echo at rosieravelstonbooks.com, on Facebook, Instagram or post-lockdown in our Blue Mountains bookshop at 201 Great Western Highway, Hazelbrook, New South Wales. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm writer Alexa Moses, and this week I've kidnapped Danny V and am holding her in a dank, nasty, creepy, fictional basement somewhere so I can take charge of her podcast. I'm the author of the middle grade series Michaela Mason's Worries, as well as the CBCA shortlisted picture book Bat vs. Poss. In this conversation, I'm excited to introduce to you best-selling Tasmanian author Lynn Tanner. Leanne has written three successful fantasy adventure trilogies, which have been translated into 11 languages and taken out two Aurealis Awards. Her picture book, Ella and the Ocean, won the Children's Prize at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards last year. And her latest middle grade book, A Clue for Clara, about a crime-fighting chicken, has just won the prestigious Davitt Crime Award for a children's novel. Note that my conversation with Leanne was recorded just before the winners were announced, so you'll hear us talk in depth about her book and the shortlisting, but not her win. Today I'm excited to speak to best-selling Tasmanian author Leanne Tanner. The woman is a literary powerhouse. Leanne, it is lovely to speak to you today. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you too, Alexa, and what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Ah, you're welcome. Now. Having delved into your career and reading a bit about your bio, I see that you seem to have had a career before you began writing. So you're sort of more like Laura Inglis Wilder, who started writing a little later, than Mary Shelley, who started at 18 and wrote Frankenstein. Explain to me, how did you become a writer? Look, I, I think I, I was a really late starter. I, I was a late starter in everything, I think. Um, but if you read a lot of authors' biographies, you see this kind of whole mess of, of jobs they had before they became a writer, and mine is very much like that. And I think um, a lot of us spend years trying to figure out what we want to do. And so, you know, like I was a teacher, I was a juggler, I was an actor, I was did all these different things. Um, and But all of it was kind of gradually wending me towards this idea of being a writer. And, and looking back now, it was a really good background for a writer because I have I have all this amazing stuff in my background which, which feeds into my writing. And also, of course, the teaching and the acting are a really wonderful background for when you present in schools. So it, it kind of took me a while. I, I think going back to writing like I wrote a, a huge amount when I was a kid I, I was always writing when I was a kid um, and then I got lost for a while and I think again that's something that sometimes happens 
to us that we 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 have these passions when when we're children and then as we start to grow up and we get distracted uh and by work and university and boys or girls or whatever um we, we kind of lose track of what our passions are. And so that happened to me. And then I came back to it in my 40s when I was studying drama and I started writing short plays. And then I worked for a, a little theatre and education company as an actor for three years and started writing some plays for them. And that got me back into writing. And so that was from then on that really took off. And tell me, what kind of acting did you do? <laughs> oh, look, uh, like I said, it was the Theatre and Education Company. This is um, back in the 19, oh gosh, 1980s, I think. Um, and it was, in, it was in Tasmania. It was the Salamanca Theatre Company. So we would uh, produce plays and tour them around Tasmania um, to the different schools. And so, you know, I was a dog. I was a nun. I was <laughs> I was any number of really strange things. I was an old woman, a old woman fossil hunter. Um, I was a farmer. I was I was all these great things. It was wonderful. It was a really lovely thing to do and a lovely thing to tour around schools. And like I said, I I learnt how to stand up in front of a group of people and and act my heart out. So it was a great background. And you're a shy person, I think. So that's unusual to me that you would act. I was really shy as a child. I, I I was incredibly shy as a child. But there came a point, I think, when I was about 14, because as well as being shy, I'm very tall and I'm confident looking. And there came a time when I was about 14 when I realised that other people thought I was really confident. And so I decided to start bluffing. And I bluffed. I bluffed my way into not being shy. Um, so now I don't think I'm at all shy, but I am an introvert, you know, and there's that that big difference between shyness and an introvert. I think people sometimes get them mixed up. Um, but I'm no longer shy, but I'm still very much an introvert and need huge amounts of time on my own to recover from humans. Yeah, so this will take it out of you and you'll need about four hours to walk around. <laughs> so... You, um, I guess also I saw that you worked in Papua New Guinea and I have to ask about that. Look, I, I studied um, earth sciences at uni, uh, mainly because at that stage, girls weren't supposed to study science. They were supposed to do arts and those sorts of things. And so, and I was quite a bolshy young, young woman. And so I thought, okay, I'm supposed to study arts. I will study science. Um, and then the girls who did study science were supposed to become teachers. And I didn't want to become a teacher for the same reason. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I want to do something different. And of course I did end up teaching because they ended up teaching in Papua New Guinea. But I got there because I finished uni. I had no idea what to do. One of my lecturers said, oh, there's this organization called Australian Volunteers Abroad, which takes volunteers to Africa and um, parts of the Pacific and to Papua New Guinea. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. That sounds different. So I signed up for that for a year. And I went for a year in uh, a, a school outside Port Moresby teaching science. And then I went for another two years to a little bush school outside Rabaul. Uh, and was teaching there. This was independently. I was teaching there on my own for, for a couple of years. And that was, a, again, that was an extraordinary experience that just um, living in the community and 
in this astonishing place with these really interesting people and wonderful kids. We we had a, as I say to, to some kids when I go around the schools, our headmaster, Mr. Oscar Tamor, was a politician. So he spent part of the part of the year in Parliament and part of the year at the school. And um, he was a product of the Australian Army and he um, used to train the kids for the inter-school sports by chasing them around the oval with a whip. Um, so it was it was an amazing place. It was it was great. Tell me, does it affect your writing, do you think? I think it does. I, I think I, I can see the traces of it is so much in my writing, both in the characters, you know, like um, I think Oscar Tamur, the headmaster, was a really strong influence on uh, Guardian Hope in the Keepers trilogy. Uh, I can see a, a con man who I met in Spain, who in Madrid was the inspiration for um, Lord Rump in the Rogues trilogy. You know, so so there are all these people who, who are sort of tucked away in the back of my mind who, who come back when I start writing uh, and and events, you know, sort of. So, so I think it's, it, there, there are people who I write about, there are places who I write about or who influence the, 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 my writing in places, but there's also, uh, there's also that that emotion, you know, like when when you write, you draw on your own wells of emotion and your own experiences of being scared and 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 being jealous and all those sorts of things. So, so all those experiences uh, affect my writing in in so many ways. What is your process like when you come up with an idea? How do you start to write? Oh, that's that's a really complicated question. And I think it's complicated because my process is actually quite chaotic. You know, I would love my process. When I first started writing and I wrote my first book and I thought, okay, that's how you do it. I will now go and write my second book and I will write it exactly the same way. And I thought that was what happened. And what I discovered is that no two books can be written the, the same way. You know, each book has its own requirements and, and you, you have certain... Uh, certain things that you bring to that, you know, that you can try out. But um, like some books I plot like mad, some books I, I hardly plot at all. But basically the, the beginning of a book is quite chaotic for me because I get an idea like, for this I, I started off with the idea of a chook who wanted to be a detective. You know, it was just kind of one of those, those ideas that came out of nowhere. And... Um, once I have that idea, I start a notebook. That's that's the first thing I do. I have a dedicated notebook for that book. And I start collecting stuff out of the air. Um, it's, it's a bit like, you know, if you buy a Volkswagen, you suddenly start seeing all these other Volkswagens on the street that you didn't notice before. <laughs> when you have an idea for a book, stuff comes in, stuff, stuff sort of drops in. And I think one of the one of the biggest parts of learning about becoming an author is learning to recognize stuff, learning to, to, to catch stuff as it flies past, you know, to, to catch, catch this fleeting idea or this, this fleeting character as they, as they nip past you uh, in the middle of the day when you're doing something completely different. So what did it look like? What kind of things are in it? 
Oh, pictures. Uh, I, I do a lot with pictures. I, I, I use collages a lot. Uh, as soon as I start to get an idea of what sort of characters might be in the book, I start looking for, so I've got this lovely picture of a chook. I've got a picture of uh, a 12, 11-year-old girl who, who looks like my idea of what Olive looks like. Um, I've got a picture of, of the villain. I've got a picture of the setting. So I, I go looking for, for things that will help my visual imagination because I, I have my imagination is very strong. My visual imagination is not all that good. Uh, so I go looking for pictures that will help me uh, solidify them in my mind and help me describe them and help me uh, think about the places where things are set. So I'm, I'm jotting down ideas. So this is kind of close to the beginning of the, of the process. I'm jotting down ideas that come to me. Uh, they might be ideas for scenes. Uh, they might be an idea for a character. They might be an idea for something terrible that happens. And at the same time, I'm collecting pictures and either sticking them in my notebook or uh, collecting them online because I, you know, get them from all over the place, magazines. Uh, I, I find actually find that the programs for, for arts festivals and for writers' festivals and arts festivals in particular are really a great resource because they have really interesting pictures in them. You know, they have people, and often those people are really interesting and quite unusual looking. It sounds like you're trying to convince yourself of the reality of the world before you write it. That's how I feel about it. I have to believe it before I can write it somehow. I don't know so much about convincing myself of the reality, more, I suppose, fleshing it out and using pictures to... So Because, you see, I also... I will find a picture and it will strike me for some reason and I will not know why it struck me, but I'll stick it in my notebook and I'll do uh, a write for nonstop for 10 minutes about that picture to see what comes out of it, you know. So it's it's all ways of tapping into different parts of the imagination and and finding finding stuff that will then enrich the story. So I'm doing that. At the same time, I'm looking for the voice of the story. And for me, this is probably the most important part. Um, until I find the voice of the story, I can't go anywhere. Uh, and by the voice, I mean who's telling the story, what they sound like. So with A Clue for Clara, I started off, so I had this idea of a chook who's a detective. I had no idea who, how she was going to tell the story. And at first, my first few goes at it before I found the voice that I ended up using I was telling it as a straight story you know there was a chook and her name was Clara and then I thought no okay that's not working that doesn't interest me in any way uh, and I, I, I've learned from experience that when I find the voice when I find the right voice there's this kind of feeling of ping you know there's this little stars and and fireworks and all that sort of stuff that tells you, yes, this is right. And as soon as you find the right voice, there's this sense of energy about it that you know will carry you through the story. I will say, until I have the voice, the whole thing feels flat and dead on the page to me. Yes, yes, and there's no energy in it. So so I was looking for the voice. I was trying it in different ways. I, was, I tried telling it from Olive's point of view, again, that, you know, third person. I tried it in first person with Olive. None of it worked, and and I actually put the book away for a while, the idea away for a while, because I couldn't, I couldn't find it. Um, and then one day I suddenly thought, a diary, a diary. This chook keeps a diary. And as soon as 
I had that idea and started writing it down and started thinking, okay, she's going to have all these parts of her day. She can tell the time, but she's also got all these parts of her day like egg o'clock and scratch o'clock and, <laughs> and first squawk and, you know, these sorts of things that mark a chook's day and that make that are really important events. And, and that then, that sense of energy came through and, and I just, it just took off from there. Um, so initially it was going to be, the whole thing was going to be Clara's diary. And I, I really loved it and I had written about a third of it and I showed it to that third to my agent who loved it and she showed that third to my publisher, Anna McFarlane, at Allen and Unwin and she also loved it. But she said... Um, look, I don't think this is going to hold for the whole book. I think at some stage we're going to need something different. I think maybe we need to hear Olive's point of view. So Olive is the, is the girl, the policeman's daughter who Clara, the chook, joins up with. Um, and so I, I heard her say, you know, I think we're going to need Olive's point of view. And I said, yes, yes, I'm sure you're right. But actually, secretly, I was saying, no, don't be ridiculous. I'm certainly not going to need that. It's going to hold the whole way through. And then I got to about halfway through the book and I thought, ah, right, okay, and it was right <laughs> because it was too much. And so then I thought, okay, Olive's not writing a diary. Olive is writing letters to her mother who died a, years ago, a year ago. And, and again, as soon as I found that voice, it, it had such power and it had such strength and it had such feeling in it and it offset Clara's diary entries so beautifully. Um, it's, it's such a swerve from... The keepers, the keepers series from your big fantasy series. That is, it is a change. It's a huge change. Oh, it's an enormous change. Um, look, there's there were a couple of things that brought about that change. The first thing was up until that, I had been writing trilogies, and a trilogy takes so long to write. You know, like you you're you're in it for at least three years, probably four years, maybe four and a half years. And what happened? And and I had I before. Before I go on, I should say that I love trilogies. I love writing trilogies because you can go so deep into the story and so deep into the characters and you find out so much about them and, you know, and, and you can get such complexity in them. But when I was writing The Rogues, I kept having these ideas for other stories that I wanted to write, but it was three years until I could get to them, two years until I could get to them. And I found that really frustrating. And so that was one reason. Um, the other reason was that when I go into schools, each book in them is around about 60,000 words, which, which is what my storytelling automatically came out at, at that, at that stage. And for a confident reader, that is not a problem. But for a kid who isn't so confident to be faced with a book of 60,000 words, that looks really quite overwhelming. Yeah. So when I finished The Rogues, I thought, okay, sick of trilogies don't want to write another trilogy, want to write a standalone, and I want it to be shorter. I want it to be more accessible to kids who are not confident readers. Clara was a palate cleanser. It was, it was a swerve into something completely new. I also wanted to write something funny because although there's humour in my trilogies, they are not kind of laugh out loud in the way that Clara is. Um, and again, I think that humour makes books more accessible for kids who are not confident readers. So it was 
it was my desire to be able to go into schools and say, okay, look, here are my big books. Here's this smaller book if you want something smaller and funny, you know, um, to, to be able to reach more kids. And it was, I mean, it's, it's, it was sheer good fortune then that Clara arrived in the middle of a pandemic when kids really needed a funny, heartwarming story. You know, that was that was good luck from my point of view that the story, that the book came out at exactly the right time. And now this little scruffy chicken is up for the David Awards. I see the cover among the gritty black and red crime novels. How does that feel? I know. Oh, it feels wonderful. It's really lovely. You know, I mean, you you would know this how fond you you are you become of your own books and and how close they are to your heart and and Clara is so close to my heart she's she's such a uh, a, a, a an amazing little character and she she tries so hard and she keeps going you know and um and to see her shortlisted for this crime writing award, you know, like a, this little chook who wants to be a detective. That is that is such a treat. It's absolutely wonderful. And again, like like you, seeing her, um, because Alan and Unwin put out a, a, a graphic of, of their books, which had been shortlisted for the Davits. And, you know, and as you say, you know, there are daggers and there's dripping blood and yep. there's all. And at the end, there's Clara. There's a cartoon chicken. <laughs> with an egg behind her. You know, gorgeous cover, by the way. The the cover is, um, the, the illustration is by Cheryl Orsini, who did the illustrations inside the book. And the cover was designed by Hannah Jansen. Such a beautiful cover. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Look, I get asked a lot this question. I'm wondering how you answer it because I don't really answer it well. When are you going to write a book for adults? You know, why do you write for children? Look, I write for children because that's where my stories fall out of me. You know, it, it's I, I think I, I've I, I think about this a lot because I think that we tend to write. I think every children's author has an age inside them that was particularly precious to them in some way or particularly meaningful to them in some way. And that kind of grade four, five, six was when I became absolutely passionate about reading and when I, you know, discovered books and found how amazing they were. And so I think my, my stories kind of come out as that age group. Having said that, I have a couple of adult books on the go. I have a novella on the go for adults, and I also have a longer story, a, a whole novel on the go for adults. Whether they will ever see the light of day, I don't know, because they are second, you know, they are secondary to my children's books. My children's books are, are where I live, and they are just kind of where I go to play every now and again. So how do you, so do you run a few projects at once? I do, I do, but but I'm not kind of writing them at the same time. I'm kind of like writing a first draft of one and then going back to something else and, and then writing, you know, a second draft of that something else and then going back to the first one. Um, and so the adult ones get, get written in the gaps, basically. And do you ever have a time where you have nothing going on? What oh, do you do in those moments? Yeah. Oh, I hate them. I hate those moments because I'm happiest when I'm writing. You know, that's that's sort of when I'm happiest and healthiest uh, is is when I've got a book on the go. Um, so yes, I do have those moments. I think probably every writer has those moments. And 
I struggle with them. I try really hard to be patient with them. I think quite often those moments come after I've finished something and the well is the well of creativity is kind of empty and there's no you can't push through it you know it's not something that you can just grit your teeth and push through I think you you have to in my experience I I go back to reading I I visit places I try and have adventures I I, I try and do things that will refill the well you know um, but it's not my favorite time at all you are you have a lot of animals is that correct Oh, not at the moment. At the moment, I don't have any animals. Oh, no. No. You- I, I had a, I had the most beautiful cat, Harry LeBeau, who died about uh, two months ago. So I'm still missing him. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see what happens next. He kind of arrived in my back garden one day um, about nine years ago, ten years ago. So I'm waiting to see who, who turns up next, basically. There are quite a few animals in your books. My, I don't think I could write a book without animals in it. I, I always have animals in my books and preferably talking animals because I really like – well, I, I love that innocent viewpoint. I love that non-human viewpoint, you know. There's a series of books around at the moment which you may or may not have come across. They're, they're for adults um, called Murderbot. Have you come across Murderbot? No, I haven't seen Murderbot. They're, I can't offhand remember who wrote them, but they are uh, Murderbot is a is a cyborg, part human, part robot, and has does, sees things from a completely different point of view. And and that's what I love. I think it's completely intriguing seeing humans from the outside and that's one of the reasons why I love writing animal characters because things that make sense to us do not make sense to animals and robots and so they see the absurdity it's a way of kind of you know like bringing up this absurdity of, of, of humans I think but uh, yes I love writing about animals it's it's my favorite thing and my favorite characters are nearly always the animals Having said that Clara was going to be a standalone, yeah, I then started writing um, a follow-up, and that's done, and that will uh, I've got the contract, and that will be coming out in July next year, July 2022, and the title is Rita's Revenge. It's it's a companion book rather than a sequel. It is a sequel. Uh, so Clara's in it and her friend Olive and a lot of the same people are in it. But the protagonist, the main character, is a duck called Rita. I can't wait to read it. Now, here is the final question that is always asked on Words and Nerds, which is, Leon, why do you write? Oh, why do I write? Um, I write because... There are always stories in my head and I want to shape them. I want to, I want to shape them into something beautiful. I write because I adore reading and writing is like reading only better because you get to live in that world for months at a time while you're creating and shaping and, and, and working out this story. Uh, I, I write because it's somehow part of me and because if I'm not writing, I'm crabby and, not very happy. <laughs> I once had a teacher who was wonderful and he was, you know, maybe in his 40s. He'd been a pretty tough kind of guy growing up. And he looked at us and said once, I can't believe that I'm a middle-aged man who tells stories for a living. 
how did we get here? I do feel like that. I totally feel like that. I I look. I, I want to go back to my to my ten year old self and say, listen, listen. This is what is going to happen. You know, all these books that you you adore, that you love to live inside. You are going to do this. That's that's just. You know, that would have been my dream back then, apart from having horses. I wanted to have horses too. But I I can't believe that I get to, you know, that this is what I get to do as a job. It is just the most wonderful thing. Thank you so much, Leanne, for your time. It has been extraordinary talking to you. Uh, everybody, you need to read A Clue for Clara. And next you look out for Rita's Revenge. And hopefully, cross fingers that you win the Davit. Thanks, Alexa. It's lovely. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Leanne. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.